What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. We've spent the last several Mondays covering the siege happening on Gaza. We continue that coverage today as the death toll for Palestinian men, women, and children has risen to 13,000 with the understanding that those numbers are likely low. Joining us to discuss are Rhonda Wabe, a former staff member at Adamir, a Palestinian non-governmental civil institution that has worked to support Palestinian political prisoners held in Israeli and Palestinian prisons since 1991. Rhonda is a Harvard PhD candidate whose research examines how Israel uses and exploits Palestinian dead bodies to surveil, control, and continuously dispossess and incarcerate the Palestinian population. Good morning, Rhonda. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We are also joined by Curry Peterson-Smith, Michael Ratner, Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he researches U.S. empire, borders, and migration. Good morning, Curry. Good morning. Welcome back to the show. Both, I, I actually, I want to I start with your reflections on some of the most recent updates on both the ground and air attacks that are happening by Israel on Gaza. They continue today, including an attack on a school in an Indonesian hospital. How close are we, or have we reached the point where, uh, specifically when we're talking about hospitals and the ongoing attacks on them, where the health infrastructure has completely collapsed? Curry, I'll start with you. Yeah, all of the reports from personnel in these hospitals, from NGOs on the ground, and from, of course, ordinary people in Gaza, all the reports indicate that the, the health system despite the heroic work of these personnel, is really unraveling. And it, it is in a state of collapse. It's an absolute crisis. I mean, you know, people sound, sounded the alarm weeks ago about what was happening. And incredibly, uh, U.S. officials have continued to give Israel the green light to continue its operations, and Israel has continued. So it's really an utter crisis at the moment. Rhonda, anything that you'd like to add there? Yeah, I would just like to add that also... Um, in addition to the attacks on the hospitals, which is, as we know, in contravention to international law, we're also seeing an increase in a lot of communicable diseases, a lot of um, a lot of cases of diarrhea, a lot of cases of other diseases that we have not seen in Gaza in a really long time that we also need to be attuned to of how how far expanding this war is and that it is an intentional attempt to um, to make Gaza completely unlivable for Palestinians. Rhonda, just a, a quick follow up to that. Is, is that in part because of the, forgive my ignorance, I'm not a scientist, but the lack of access to clean water and the contamination of what water remains? I mean, I saw a news headline where there was joy because rain was falling from the sky, right? And an and, and ability to get some water. Absolutely. This is very, uh, water has been a very central cog in this war of how um, Israel is controlling and, and causing a slow genocide of the Palestinian people by denying access to water, denying access to any um, medical supplies. And this has been causing all of these conditions. Curry, before we, we move on, I just want to give you one more opportunity to, to is there something that I, I should have asked that I did not about the current state of affairs in, in Gaza? Not at all. I mean, I, I think that, you know, as the 
you know, other listeners know that this is a catastrophe. It has been one and it continues to deepen. I think what's really incredible is that it's evident that the, the U.S. in particular seems to have no red lines whatsoever. There's nothing that Israel can do that it would consider unacceptable or beyond the pale. On, on October 9th, the Israeli defense minister said that they would be cutting off water, food, electricity, and fuel, uh, which have had, which first of all is a violation of international law. That's not, um, you know, that's not mysterious. It's really straightforward. And also, it had the effects precisely what, what Rana just laid out, um, all of which was very predictable. Now, Israel is going hospital to hospital, first bombing them, and now with on-the-ground uh, invasions, um, launching firefights around hospital complexes and so on. And it's just kind of incredible that the U.S. policy to this moment has been not only unconditional rhetorical support, not only rejecting a ceasefire, but continuing to send weapons. And so one must ask, is there anything that Israel could do that the Biden administration would object to? Rhonda, I, I think your ti the timing of having you on the show um, is actually perfect because Biden, in the last couple of days, recently made a statement that he would support the Palestinian Authority being the governing body of Palestine post this genocide if it, quote, ended its payment system for Palestinian prisoners, end quote, given your work uh, with with political prisoners, your reaction? Yeah, um, I just want to draw attention to the fact that as we have all eyes on Gaza right now, um, there has been a wide-scale arrest campaign across historic Palestine, particularly in the West Bank, where the Palestinian Authority are um, are technically governing. There's been 50 to 100 people arrested every night from their homes. Um, there's about 10,000 Palestinians incarcerated by Israel right now, 3,000 that have been arrested just in the last month from the West Bank, and thousands more who are workers from Gaza who have been arrested and put in military detention camps that have been opened specifically for them. Um, and this is incredibly harrowing, the attack on um, Palestinian prisoners. Um, since uh, 1967, Israel has arrested upwards of a million Palestinians. Um, uh, incarceration is central to the settler colonial project, and, is, and we should consider it also part of this genocidal campaign. Um, it is a way to control the Palestinian population. It is a way to, um, to uh, deny them from any basic civil rights. Um, and so uh, to, to say, for Biden to say that, um, that the Palestinian government must um, abandon the Palestinian political prisoners in order to um, be able to govern is is ridiculous because almost every Palestinian has been either arrested or has had a family member arrested. So that would be impossible for the Palestinian government to be able to do that. And, and Corey, before I get your thoughts, uh, Rhonda, I want to I want to stay with you because uh, that you actually segued uh, into into my next question. Um, mm -hmm. Talk about the conditions inside of, I mean, I think what we have to call concentration camps. Yeah, so since October 7th, Israel has um, really expanded um, its uh, carceral system on Palestinians and has really been um, punishing them as retribution 
um, uh, while escalating the war on Gaza. So um, we've actually, like, uh, lawyers have had a lot of difficulty in gaining access to their clients. They've been almost completely barred from them. And so the prisoners are almost incommunicado at this point, which is very harrowing. From what we have been able to gain about the um, information in these uh, camps and in these prisons is that there's just a, a wide scale campaign to, to humiliate them and to punish them from everything from denying them to be able to uh, to use the canteen. Um, they've confiscated all of the blankets, for example. They've confiscated all of the extra clothing of prisoners. They're refusing to allow them to even close the windows of their cells, meaning that they're forced to live in these freezing conditions. Um, doctors are not allowed to visit prisoners. They're not allowed to go into the yard. Electricity is cut off. There's overcrowding. It is a um, attempt to put them in such degraded conditions and to humiliate them. And we, I think we really need to center on humiliation as, uh, as part of this campaign to try to break Palestinian will. Um, and of course, yeah, it's complete dehumanization. And that's why I, I want to just emphasize how this is part of the genocidal campaign to make Palestinians um, outside of outside of humanity in every sense of the word. Um, I'm sure, Kat, you've seen um, so many of these um, so many uh, cases about uh, torture, psychological and physical torture, including um, it's become so normalized for Israeli soldiers to torture and humiliate prisoners that they're actually posting it on their social media. It's become so normalized that it's become part of the social fabric you know, on, on a site where they would post like normal life. They're posting uh, videos of Palestinians being humiliated, of Palestinians being blindfolded and tortured. Um, we've also been receiving cases of um, threats of sexual assault and of rape um, for, that is being told to them while they're being interrogated, um, like extremely humiliating beatings. Um, it's, it's a very harrowing situation right now. And I can't help, Rhonda, but, but I mean, one of the things that the, the that many of us celebrate about Palestinians, right, is, is, is the freedom fighters across the globe look to Palestinians for the spirit of resistance and resilience. And I'm sure that is also what Israel sees and what it, they are trying to break once and for all. Curry. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, no, go ahead. Oh, go, yeah, please respond. Oh, I just no, no, wanted please to, respond. Go, go. No, I just wanted to affirm absolutely. And because um, prisoners have given us the sacrifice of their lives for this political movement, um, I think that is very central to why they are specifically being punished and humiliated. Thank you, uh, Rhonda. Curry, I want to back up a little bit. Your reaction first to the suggestion that uh, Biden has made that the Palestinian Authority should be the governing body of Palestine post this genocide, and then to the conditions that Biden has put on um, that assertion uh, with the, the, but it must in its payment system for Palestinian prisoners. I mean, he used another word, but I won't use that word. So. Right. Yeah. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I just I think that what Rhonda said is extremely important. You know, the notion Biden, U.S. officials, they present these ideas as though they're kind of, you know, they're sitting around the boardroom and, you know, we're spitballing on the whiteboard and we're like, oh, what if we just have the Palestinian Authority administer Gaza? And it's like we don't one doesn't have to speculate as to what that regime would look like and what 
the parameters of it set by Israel and the United States would be, because we're seeing it in the West Bank. I mean, before October 7th, having nothing to do with October 7th, the number of Palestinians killed in the West Bank by Israeli forces and by Israeli settlers protected by the official uh, Israeli military and police, the numbers killed were alarming. The numbers wounded in uh, raids that Israel was carrying out and escalating in the West Bank was also alarming. And I, I think that, you know, Randa's attention to not just the killing and not just the wounding, the kind of physical wounding, but the humiliation is also extremely important. And the kind of uh, parades that we have seen by settlers in the West Bank, the um, kind of acts of mass violence, uh, some of which have resulted in deaths and in physical wounds, but all of which have been to intimidate and humiliate. This is this has been allowed to not only allowed to flourish with the Palestinian Authority supposedly uh, acting as as an authority and as a as a partner um, in the West Bank, but frankly, what's evident is that. This is part of the regime, actually, that Israel envisions. Uh, so, you know, a certain Palestinian authority in name, while Israeli forces and Israeli settlers are able to do essentially whatever they want, all of which is underwritten by the United States. So it's, it's really it's really something, too, that, the, the you know, and, and it speaks volumes that the conditions that Biden suggests for this vision, if you can call it that, the conditions are not on the Israelis as they're violating countless uh, international laws right now. The conditions are on the Palestinian Authority. You know, I think that this all reveals um, anything you need to know, really, about about what they're the way that they're operating now and what they envision after this particular uh, chapter of violence is, is over. Thank you, Curry. And that that leads me directly into another question I wanted to ask you, Rhonda. Biden is demanding the Palestinian Authority and its payments for Palestinian prisoners, but can you talk about how Israel has used dead bodies of Palestinians in political negotiations and, and hostage trades? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first, before even getting into that question, I just want to highlight that right now um, we've been receiving testimonies from Gaza that when um, Israel enters the hospitals, they have actually been taking bodies out of the morgues and holding them hostage and holding them captive as well. Um, so this this is um, this is a concerted policy that has been going on since um, since 1948 into the present. Um, so Israel has been is currently holding about 400 Palestinian dead bodies, which they use um, on a multiple scales to try to control the Palestinian population. First, of course, they're controlling um, the Palestinian right to mourn by not allowing the families to have uh, to um, be able to get the bodies back and to be able to bury them as they wish. But on a larger scale, uh, the dead bodies of Palestinians are being used um, in these uh, exchanges. So right now, as we know, there is one of the demands um, for is a prisoner swap. So the release of Palestinian prisoners in exchange for the uh, the Israeli soldiers and civilians who are being held captive in Gaza. What Israel has done in the past in 2014 and afterwards when there has been prisoner swaps is to try to exchange the bodies of the Palestinian dead 
um, for for any Israelis that are being held captive. So this is this is part of what I've been trying to think about as a necrocarceral state about how Palestinian life is being incarcerated in life and in death simply to be controlled by Israel. Um, I'm sorry, that, that just stopped me dead in my, my, my tracks. Um, Curry, I want to tug on a thread that, that you mentioned earlier, right? So a lot of, a lot of media, Western media, I, I should say, has been very focused on what is happening in historic Palestine. But can you talk more about the rising violence in the West Bank, specifically attacks by extremists, I mean, they're all extremists, Israelis in outposts on Palestinian civilians? Yes, absolutely. You know, Earlier this year, um, there was more than one example of Israeli settlers storming Palestinian towns and uh, setting fire to Palestinian vehicles and um, farms and homes and, and land. Uh, and, and settlers just, just killing uh, Palestinians at will, again, all with the protection of the, the so-called Israeli defense forces. That has coincided with a, a growing number, a kind of a, really an escalation of military operations um, that Israel is carrying out uh, in, in the West Bank, in West Bank towns uh, like Nablus and in and, um, Bethlehem and Janine. Uh, and so that was, again, that's what characterized the beginning of the year. And, you know, one must remember that the year began really with the coming into power of this new Israeli government, which itself is more than any other Israeli government in its history, the embodiment of the settler movement. Um, and so, you know, Israel carries out violence throughout historic Palestine. There has been within Israeli politics, Israeli politics kind of makes a distinction between uh, the settler movement, which is known for being especially fanatical um, uh, and operating in, in, in the West Bank um, until, you know, 2005 in Gaza as well. Uh, that especially fanatical kind of element of Israeli politics is now running the government. And so uh, it, it's, it's not a coincidence that we have seen an intensification of ongoing um, just theft of land, theft of homes, and violence to secure those things, both formally by uh, Israeli armed forces and informally by Israeli settlers, because these are essentially the same, it's the same people. Rand, I'm, I'm wondering if you would like to add anything there and then segue into conditions specifically for Palestinian prisoners in the West Bank. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, just to echo what uh, Huri was saying, we've also been seeing in this moment a lot of changes to the military codes that are um, holding Palestinian prisoners, um, uh, how they've been holding Palestinian prisoners captive. So we've been cha seeing changes in how long they can be remanded, how long they can be held without a lawyer. Um, for some prisoners, that's up to three months. They can be held in interrogation without ever having access to a lawyer, which is they're being held completely incommunicado. So I think that um, what we're seeing is a full scale escalation, both by the government, by the settlers to try to control and hold captive all Palestinians at every single level. 
And this also feeds into the the horrific conditions of the prisoners, which by the way have escalated since October 7th, but census government has taken hold, they have been escalating the attacks on the uh, political prisoners. For example, earlier this year, they were in discussion to um, to uh, bring forth a bill that would allow for execution of uh, Palestinian political prisoners. They have been consistently not allowing the families to visit the prisoners. They have uh, been barring the lawyers from visiting them. So this is all part of the project of isolating the political prisoners from their family, from their community, and is part of the practice of trying to, uh, you know, uh, fracture the Palestinian society and uh, disallow them and 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 make them and uh, repress them from being able to fight for their rights, fight for their liberty, and fight for their ability to live on their land. Kurt. Curry Peterson Smith, um, one of the things that we bring you on is to, to talk about, you know, sort of international impact and uh, specifically, um, I will wonder if you can talk about, you know, two months into the um, genocide, uh, where are now Egypt and Jordan uh, in relation to this conflict? Well, this is really interesting um, because the Egyptian government, first of all, should be said, is under is, is in this kind of complicated position. Um, on one hand, has had not only a de facto, um, you know, I mean, the, the, the signed a peace agreement with with Israel in 1979, and has had um, de facto very uh, solid relations. But frankly, Egypt has been central to maintaining the blockade of Gaza uh, for the past 16 years. You know, Gaza is referred to as the world's largest open air prison. Egypt is, Egypt is one of the prison guards. Um, so this situation, um, for a number of reasons, has put the Egyptian government in a complicated position. Uh, a, because Egypt itself could end this, uh, you know, could, could, they could have ended the, 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 the blockade of Gaza at any point in the past 16 years. They certainly um, could be doing a lot more in terms of Palestinian freedom of movement uh, today. And it's also Israel's putting it in a complicated position because Israel, um, Israeli officials are very openly discussing displacing the Palestinian population in Gaza en masse and moving them into the Sinai Peninsula, um, which Egypt uh, objects to. Egypt has been um, carrying out its own so-called counter-terror operations in, in that region um, for a while now. What's interesting, though, or what's, what's very important is there's been such a revival of sympathy and solidarity with Palestinians among the broad population um, of the Middle East, I mean, really throughout the world, but the Middle East especially, and that includes, and, and, and this is especially true uh, in Egypt, um, and there's been incredible uh, solidarity protests in Jordan as well. All of that is putting a lot of pressure on those governments to um, position themselves as helping to be negotiators uh, in this whole process. Um, you know, they played a role in the, the negotiation of this um, five-day pause uh, that that is supposed to take place that which is presided over by the United States curiously 
It's meant to coincide with the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, but these governments are all there's there's a certain incentive to kind of position themselves uh, as as negotiators and as part of uh, a solution here. So as that sympathy and solidarity deepens among the populations of those countries, um, we we will see we will see what those governments are are um, are forced uh, to do in terms of more um, to to try to to make a ceasefire happen. Rhonda, your reaction there, and then um, the question for you, in what ways has the international community failed Palestinian political prisoners? Thank you. Um, I, I just want to echo what um, Hori has been saying, and also to really say that I think what we're seeing in this moment right now is a class struggle, uh, a global class struggle, where we're seeing leadership being in complete opposition to the masses. As, as Huri was saying, in Egypt and in Jordan, there's been opposition for how, how slow uh, the negotiations process has been from the leadership versus how much their population has been going out. In the United States, we're seeing uh, elected officials and elected representatives not listening to the thousands and hundreds of thousands that are on the street every week and every day, which has been causing a crisis of how Americans are seeing democracy um, working in this country um, and the fallacy of democracy. Uh, we're seeing that people are really interrogating where their tax dollars are going. We're interrogating the military industrial complex and the manufacturing of weapons. So I think we're about to cross a threshold globally through Palestine on how uh, people are seeing their power as citizens, as constituents together, and not necessarily seeing power from above. So we're really seeing a moment where we're coming together on the grassroots. Um, to speak about uh, how the international community has failed uh, Palestinian prisoners, uh, this has been a long time issue. And I think what this moment is really telling us, especially if we think about Israel as a carceral state, um, as a state that uses incarceration to control Palestinians, whether that is inside the jails or whether that is creating Gaza as an open air prison that's under blockade and under siege, we really need to start thinking about abolition and what it means in an anti-colonial context. And that's really, this is a moment to have us interrogate and hold accountable all of the structures that keep these carceral systems in place globally. And part of that is also thinking about the role and the complicity of humanitarian organizations. Such, for example, mm. the ICRC, the Red Cross, is responsible for the protection of Palestinian prisoners. But ever since October 7th, they have been, uh, the families of the prisoners have been doing sit-ins and have been shutting down the offices of the ICRC because they have failed so miserably in their mandate to protect prisoners because Israel tells the ICRC they're not allowed to enter, they're not allowed to visit the prisoners. And uh, they, have, they have just listened. They have just heeded that demand without pushing back. They're not facilitating visits to, uh, to check on the prisoners. They're not helping the families uh, visit. They're not helping locate detainees. At this time, we have detainees who are completely incommunicado for 
24 to 48 hours and sometimes longer where we don't know where they are. And so they're not using their power that they have to push against the clear violations of international law and the clear violations of their own mandate. And so this is a moment for us to really put into question what is the role of these organizations? How are they upholding these structures of power rather than fighting against them? Totally agree, and I think it's important to uplift, right, like this question with the, the Red Cross uh, in particular comes up all over the globe, right? Haiti, the Congo, everywhere. So mm -hmm. definitely mm -hmm. it's time to be asking these questions. I've got to move on to my next guest. I want to thank you both so much for joining me today and hope that you will come back. Thank you so much. Thanks for having so us. So grateful. Yeah, thank you. We've been speaking to Randa Wabe, a former staff member at Adamir, a Palestinian non-governmental civil institution that has worked to support Palestinian political prisoners held in Israeli and Palestinian prisons since 1991. Randa is a Harvard PhD candidate whose research examines how Israel uses and exploits Palestinian dead bodies to surveil, control, and continuously dispossess and incarcerate the Palestinian population. We were also joined by Curry Peterson-Smith, Michael Ratner, Middle East Fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies, where he researches U.S. empire borders and migration. We are now joined by Laura Kiswani, the executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, or ARAC, which organizes for racial and economic justice and the dignity and liberation of our Arab and Muslim communities here in the Bay Area. She's also Palestinian. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Kat. Thank you so much for joining us. Laura, um, I mean, I, you've been involved in the struggle for Palestinian liberation for decades. Um, and, I, you know, I've about a decade and a half been in the streets with you um, in support. This groundswell in the Bay Area, I mean, nonstop rolling actions, tens of thousands of people um, over the last seven weeks have been in the streets. Your, your reaction to, to, to what's happening here and the impact you believe it's happen having? Well, I think the Bay Area has a long history, you know, of masses of people taking political action in support of social justice movements here and internationally. And time and time and again, we've proven that we are, you know, influence what takes place not only locally, nationally and internationally through our work in organizing and have constantly stood on the right side of history, despite what our electives and those in power um, choose to do. And what we're seeing today is a reflection of that also a reflection of the long, deep cross-movement solidarity that we've built here in the Bay Area across different communities who are showing up for one another. So it's no surprise to me that we're able to mobilize 50,000 people in the streets of San Francisco for Palestine. It's no surprise to me that people are shutting down federal buildings, and it's no surprise to me that courageous activists and residents of the Bay took the Bay Bridge and made sure that they made it clear to the world that they'll disrupt business as usual when there's a genocide unfolding at the hands of our government. It really is inspiring to see this. Um, also disheartening that despite how much we're able to move in the streets and on the, on the grassroots level, we continue to face off with elected officials refusing to call for a ceasefire. Most recently, um, over the weekend, we saw hundreds of organizers uh, disrupt the Democratic Party convention uh, in Sacramento. There's an article in American Prospect, um, and I'm just going to read the first sentence from it and get your reaction. It says, by now, it is clear that the Israeli 
they call it a conflict. The, the, I'm not say, it, by now it is clear that, that what is happening in Palestine is driving a rift into progressive liberal and democratic party ranks that may be as deep as the one caused by the Vietnam War. Whether it will be as lasting as the divisions of the 60s remains to be seen. What is clear now, however, is that the political consequences this time around may be much more severe. Your thoughts? Well, we're, I mean, that's a fact that we're seeing that the majority of Democrats, 80 percent, are supporting a ceasefire. But if you want to count how many people in Congress and the Democratic Party are supporting a ceasefire, that doesn't add up. Right. So there's clearly a rift here, a clear divide. And I think in some ways what's happening is we're seeing Palestine become a wedge issue, not just historically for social justice movements, where today now we can say without a doubt that Palestine is central to any social justice movement. But now it's becoming a wedge issue within the Democratic Party. It's becoming a wedge issue amongst all of Congress. It's becoming a wedge issue in this country in a way that um, is resulting in Biden having lower polls than he's ever had. It's resulting in people questioning their own bosses and leaving, you know, con- leaving congressional offices and walking out. Um, there is definitely a tipping point that we're seeing here, and I think that it's about time that people understand that apartheid Israel, settler colonialism, U.S. military aid to an apartheid state needs to be put to question. It won't be just taken as business as usual. Speaking of Biden, I'm going to throw a question to you I threw to my previous guest. Biden recently made a statement that he would support the Palestinian Authority being the governing body of Palestine post this genocide, genocide being my word, not his, if it, quote, ended its payment system for Palestinian prisoners, end quote. Your reaction? Well, we don't um, look to the Western governments to tell us who are or not our leaders. Um, We, as a Palestinian people, are looking to be sovereign, are demanding our self-determination and liberation, and it is then we decide who does represent us. We know that the Palestinian Authority is nothing more than a token um, representative that works with the Israeli military and with the United States. They have done nothing for our people on the ground today. We see a rejection of the Palestinian Authority across the West Bank. Um, and internationally in diaspora, we also reject the Palestinian Authority just as we reject the Israeli military and reject U.S. imperialism in our region. One more, well, I guess it's like a follow-up question and, and, and then a sub-question. The other thing that, that Joe said uh, over the weekend was uh, a demand to um, I- Israeli attacks on Palestinian people in the West Bank. And I, f- I feel like, to our earlier point about the pressure that's being put on the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. that people across race, class, et cetera, are saying, I will not vote for for a man that has supported genocide, that he is trying to do everything except for Call a ceasefire, CYA, if you will. I mean, I think at this point, it's shocking that something as basic as a ceasefire is so controversial and complicated. Yeah. Um, I, and I think it shouldn't be that way. And that's why at this point, we're all wondering, you know, what will it take for people to realize that this is really a question of you're either against the genocide of the Palestinian people or you're for the genocide of the Palestinian people, which is something I heard you say in the federal building when our allies shut it down in solidarity. And it's really that simple. Um, It's really as simple as that. And until people start to take, um, to stand on the right side of history, we're going to see more and more people shutting down congressional offices, shutting down federal buildings. We're going to see more and more people making it clear that we won't allow this to continue um, using U.S. tax dollars. And it's unfortunate that it takes this for us to be heard. But at the end of the day, we know that in all other movement struggles in, in, in the history of this time and that it took 
people taking risk. It took people taking action to disrupt business as usual in order for things to change. And that's what we're witnessing today across the world with millions rising up. We've never seen this many people rise up for Palestine. It is incredible. It is beautiful. It's showing us that the masses stand with us. The masses of the world stand on the right side of history and know what needs to be done while those in power choose to reject that. But it also means that if we continue down this path where we continue to mobilize, we continue to target electeds wherever we may be, we continue to disrupt business as usual, we continue to take action and take risk because that's what this moment requires of us. And every moment in history, it requires people taking risk in order for there to be a tipping point. And we're seeing our allies, and we're so proud of all of our allies who continue to do that, whether it was on the Bay Bridge, where people said, you know what, I'm going to stop my cars, I'm going to get out, and I'm going to say no more. (laughs) Knowing that Biden is right here in our backyard, we won't allow that to happen. We won't allow Biden to be here sipping um, on drinks and having cocktail parties while he is supporting and making possible a genocide of the Palestinian people on our tax dollars. So people are saying no more, and they're disrupting business as usual, and the whole world is watching. It is absolutely incredible to know, and I want people to know that are listening, that what we do here in the Bay, it has reverberations across the world. People in Palestine are watching. People around the world are watching. We're part of a global community that's saying no more, not in our name, no more tax dollars being used to to go to the apartheid Israel and what they really are saying is we stand with the Palestinian people in their movement for self-determination. I'm so glad you brought up the point of us being a global community, right? I think, and I say it as, as often as I can, right, that, that we've been in, part of this global community and, and sharing information and resources from the Bay to Palestine, from Palestine to the Bay for decades. To that end, there's an effort to get the Oakland City Council to pass a ceasefire resolution and a special meeting, I believe, to be called for perhaps this week. Um, I, I just I know that you've tugged on this thread already, um, but but tug a little more what, what it means for for Oakland, birthplace of the Panthers, birthplace of 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 where we started having really serious conversations right in the 60s and 70s about the importance of international struggle and solidarity um, in order to free all oppressed people for Oakland City Council to, to pass that that ceasefire resolution. Yeah, I don't have to lecture your listeners about the history, radical tradition of Oakland, right, and the need for Oakland to continue down that path in support of movements for justice anywhere. But what I should say now is that we are ashamed of the city of Oakland in this moment, that we know a military vessel left the port of Oakland to take military equipment to apartheid Israel to support the genocide of my people. So that is why we showed up to the port a few weeks ago to demand that this ship not leave the port of Oakland, that workers stand in solidarity. And that ship met resistance in Tacoma as well. And a worker ended up getting off that ship saying, I can't be a part of this. That is what is happening today in Oakland, where we are not only complicit because we are allowing U.S. tax dollars to go to the state of Israel. The city of Oakland is complicit because it literally sent a military vessel to aid in the genocide of, of people in Gaza. And in addition to that, We are witnessing young people, our families, we are busy at work trying to defend families and parents and youth across the Bay Area who are facing an increased attacks, Islamophobic attacks and hate violence, discrimination and bullying simply for being Palestinian, simply for being Arab, simply for being Muslim, simply for being pro-Palestinian, Arab, Muslim or not. 
And what we need now from elected officials and those in power is to say that we support you. We see you. We don't stand on the side of genocide. We will not fan the flames of war and ethnic cleansing. We will defend the dignity of all people, all students, all families, including Palestinians, Arabs, and Muslims, which we know there's a growing population of Arabs in the city of Oakland. So that is why it is so important for Oakland City Council to pass a resolution in support of a ceasefire. It is important because Richmond did it. It's important because those and other cities are saying, we won't allow this to happen. It's time that Oakland follows suit. So families and communities and residents and constituents across Oakland are demanding that of city council. AROC is supporting in that demand. And we are hoping that there will be a special meeting on November 27th that, that um, city council member Fife is calling for. We've seen um, City Council Member Fife, in addition to Nikki Bass, have called for a ceasefire and put out public statements, and we are deeply grateful for that, and we're hoping that others will do the same and understand this isn't just another issue. This is an, an, a critical issue of this time, and one day people will look back and say, where did I stand on this question, and I shoulda, coulda, woulda. And what we are showing people today as people of conscience in the Bay and across the world is we're not going to let you just say shoulda, coulda, woulda. We're demanding that you take action now. That's right. This is a line in the sand issue, period, full stop. Laura Kaswani, what is next for Bay Area organizing, and can you tell people where to learn more? Well, we're continuing to do political education. We know there's a lot of work to be done for people to understand what's at stake and what's happening and to um, undo what they're learning through mainstream media. So we encourage you all to reach out. There is a mass meeting that AROC, APTP, Bay Resistance, and Center for Political Education are organizing on November 26th. That is open and to the public. You can find that information on Bay Resistance or AROC's webpage, um, ArabOrganizing.org. What we're asking people to do is show up to take action, to learn about how to take action, how to plug in if you're already involved, to continue to stay involved and get connected with others. And also there'll be a whole political education track Today is Healthcare Workers Day of Action Day. So today is World Children's Day, and healthcare workers across the country are taking action in defense of the of the rights of Palestinian children to be protected. So we um, ask you to plug into that if you're a healthcare worker, if you work at a hospital, look to your right or left. There's probably an action happening in your workplace as we speak um, later on today. And we're also continuing to ask each and every one of you to call your congressional representatives. It's a shame that only Congressional Representative Barbara Lee has signed on to a ceasefire in the Bay Area. So we're asking everybody to continue to do that, to make your calls, to make your emails, um, and also continue to take action. So we will be doing more work in the coming days to ensure that there is no business as usual as long as there is a genocide. And we're going to ask you to continue to look to us and other Arab and Palestinian orgs and, and are also our anti-Zionist Jewish orgs like Jewish Voice for Peace for ways to do that. So we hope to see you in the streets because we can't allow this to continue and we know that we're having an impact. So I just want to end on one note, Kat, if that's okay, and that Absolutely. everything we're doing here in the Bay, it's not symbolic, right? So when we show up to the streets, when we show up to the ports, when we shut down SFO International to defend Arab and Muslim families against mm -hmm. the Muslim ban, when residents of the Bay shut down the Bay Bridge, we're shutting down choke points of the entire Bay Area. We're actually interrupting the economy. We're disrupting business as usual. We're making our voices heard, and we're showing that people truly can um, press a break in the engines of war and genocide. And that's really what we are doing here in the Bay and showing the rest of the world that we join you in doing that because it's not only happening here in the Bay. Across the world, workers are saying we will not 
carry or unload or, or support or work any military ship going to the state of Israel. Across the world, people are marching in the hundreds of thousands. Across the world, people are shutting down business as usual. We're part of that history, and I'm so proud of that. And we will need to continue down this path to continue to take action because as your previous speakers made it clear, ceasefire needs to happen. And the fact that they're even discussing it the way they are today in the congressional offices is because of our work. It's because of the masses moving people. They won't move on their own. They'll move because we demand it. All right, Laura Kaswani, we have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning for all your work. Much love and solidarity to you, my sister. You've been listening to Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law & Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.